people need to understand that healthy aging isn't one of those things that you can play catch up with. You know, just because you feel good, that you perform well, you can go to the gym, you can do a hard workout uh, and feel great, doesn't mean that certain seeds aren't being planted that are happening in your physiology that will someday catch up with you. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is a replay of a monthly webinar that I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health with Dr. Bob Roundtree on healthy aging. We talk about healthy aging and how decisions that support short-term performance gains may differ from those that best support long-term health. We also talk about how to assess your long-term health by using laboratory markers, the impact of factors such as exercise, intermittent fasting, sleep, nutrition, and environmental toxins on our health, as well as some supplements that may be beneficial. You can join us live for next month's webinar on December 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, which will be featuring Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's a family physician also who has expertise in geriatrics and nutritional science and works closely with the Special Operations Military. And we'll be discussing skeletal muscle and health. So keep an eye out in the CrossFit email of the day and on CrossFit.com for registration details. Before we dive into this episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get to the episode. I'm excited. I'm very excited about our guest today, Dr. Bob Roundtree. Uh, I'm going to start with a little bio about him. He graduated from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in 1976 and received his medical degree from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine at Chapel Hill in 1980 and subsequently completed a residency in family and community medicine at the MS Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania, after which he was certified by the American Board of Family Practice. And we were just talking before the webinar started about how he has cared for patients as a family doctor for now, I guess, over almost 40 years. Um, and some of those patients he you know, delivered and did their newborn exams in the hospital, and now uh, they're growing up and having great success in life also. So always close to my heart talking to another family doctor and such a great role model. Um, so he's been practicing in Boulder, Colorado since 1983. He began his professional career at Wellspring Partners in Health, a multidisciplinary clinic that included medical doctors, naturopathic doctors, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, nutritionists, body workers, and somatic therapists. And he was one of the first holistic healthcare centers in the U.S. And since January of 2002, he's been the medical director of Boulder WellCare, which is a private practice specializing in integrative personalized medicine. He's the longtime clinical editor, as well as a regular columnist for alternative and complementary therapies. And he's co-authored numerous books and written numerous book chapters on integrative and nutritional medicine. Now, in addition to his medical practice, he is an original longstanding member of the core faculty for the Institute for Functional Medicine. In June 2015, he was given the Linus Pauling Functional Medicine Award by IFM in recognition for his many years of mentoring and training healthcare providers. And I can speak personally to that as I've taken several uh, Institute for Functional Medicine courses, and he is definitely one of the most engaging and exciting lecturers. So I think we're all in for a real treat tonight. 
Um, he's also served for over 10 years as the chief medical advisor for Thorne Health Tech, a world leader in the development and manufacturing of pure high quality nutritional and botanical supplements, along with advanced multiomic and diagnostic testing. In the past two decades, he's had the opportunity to lecture all over the world to professional and public audiences. He's also an avid mountain hiker and especially passionate about the great outdoors, wild nature, and the preservation of biodiversity. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bob Roundtree. You bet, Julie. It's great to be on. (laughs) So our topic tonight is healthy aging. And I think that probably means something different to everybody listening tonight. And I think that when we think about aging, we often think about having more birthdays, right? Getting another year older and the chronological aging process. But I'd love to start with just how you think about and how you explain aging from a biological perspective. Okay. Um, You know, I guess one way to frame it is to think about a condition like osteoporosis is I, I will see women... Uh, in their 50s, you know, they're, they're on the other side of menopause and we get a bone scan and lo and behold, they don't have any calcium in their bones, right? They're at high risk of fracture. And then they say, well, maybe I should start taking calcium. And my response is, well, maybe, but uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to you when you were 20, right? the seeds of this osteoporosis started when you're in your 20s and your 30s, right? So people need to understand that healthy aging isn't one of those things that you can play catch up with, that, you know, just because you feel good, that you perform well, you can go to the gym, you can do a hard workout uh, and feel great, doesn't mean that certain seeds aren't being planted that are happening in your physiology that will someday catch up with you. And part of my perspective has been formed after years of being in Sportstown, USA, Boulder, Colorado, and hearing story after story about someone who thought they were in great shape that went out for a run in the morning and killed over of a heart attack on a trail. I'm sure you've heard of that story, kind of story too. Remember Jim Fix, that might've been a little bit before your time, but you know, these famous runners that say, well, I can do everything, you know, as long as I exercise, then I can eat anything I want. And what this is all illustrating is the difference between what's actually going on biologically versus what you might see on the outside. Again, someone can be, you know, a, a good performer athletically, um, everything can look good, but maybe they've got high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. They don't know it. Or maybe they've got the seeds of diabetes. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this to scare the hell out of people. <laughs> no. It's just that you have to understand that there's certain things that need to be tracked. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that we need to pay attention to. And so, you know, that brings up this kind of million dollar question that scientists have been grappling with forever, which is, is, is aging just a result of wear and tear? Does it only happen because you're doing something repetitively day in, day out, and eventually the joints wear down, et cetera? Or is there actually a set of programs, a program or maybe a set of programs that are in our DNA that tell us, well, we're going to start, you know, wearing down regardless of what we do. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of both. 
So there's, you know, clearly you can overdo it. I've, uh, you know, there's a, a guy at my gym who won the marathon at the Olympics and, um, you know, his body is not the same now, you know, he still works out. He's still in, in good shape. Uh, but I can tell the effect of the wear and tear. So yeah, wear and tear is going on, but there are other things happening that are more subtle that are less obvious. That woman that got osteoporosis when she's 55, she had no way of knowing when she was 25 that she was losing calcium at a faster rate than other women her age. Mm-hmm. So is that making sense? There, there are two different things going on. There's wear and tear and there's biology and biology involves certain programs. Absolutely. Yes. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more, but before we get there, I really like what you said about sort of this distinction between it can sometimes be confusing if we're feeling like we have great short-term performance, but we don't always know what that means for our long-term health. Are we doing the best thing for our long-term health? And I think that's interesting, especially thinking about CrossFit's definition of fitness and health is, you know, our fitness, we think about our fitness as a snapshot of our health and our health is fitness maximized across our lifetime, across the years of our lives. But other than our performance markers, which we can track, what other things could we be looking at? As you mentioned, there's other things that, that we may need to pay attention to in order to know if we are setting ourselves up for success over the long term. Well, you want to know about your blood sugar, right? So diabetes, type 2 diabetes is something that develops over decades. And people really need to understand that. You know, it's not like you're walking down the street one day and boom, you have diabetes. Now, it's true. Most people with type 2 diabetes, which is different than the autoimmune type 1 diabetes, but most people with type 2 diabetes have too much visceral fat, right? Too much belly fat. You know, they're overweight or obese. So the majority of people that have it have a clue because they can look in the mirror. But there are also a lot of people that have it and don't know it. You know, there's lean diabetes. And an example of that is fatty liver. So one of the the precursors to type 2 diabetes is fatty liver. And it's thought to affect 20% of the population in the U.S. Can you have fatty liver and be lean? Absolutely. Can you work out every day and have fatty liver? Absolutely. You know, and, and there's a reason for that. It's the people that drink sweetened beverages, I think. And there's sports drinks that are out there that shock me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look at the ingredients for those drinks, I think, okay, they're going to give you fuel. They're going to rev you up. They've got the caffeine, you know, high fructose corn syrup or some other sweetener. Does that make it good for you? If you feel better when you do it, yeah, I can perform better. I can run faster. Can you do it? I'm not knocking caffeine. I actually happen to like it myself. Um, but a lot of people don't do well with caffeine. Mm-hmm. And just another example of some of those things that can give us short-term benefit, but maybe not, may not be best for the long-term. So looking at, yep. at diabetes um, and, and trying to, to track any signs of early diabetes, obviously, before it becomes a problem is one thing we can look at. Um, yeah, and there's a, it's a big debate. I've just been having this discussion with some colleagues lately about 
using continuous glucose monitors. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a talk with, uh, I'm sure you know, Ben Greenfield mm-hmm. about this, you know, and he was going on about how his CGM tells him that or that, this or that. And, and Peter Atia is the same way he uses it. And he says, well, my blood sugar's all over the place. Some people say, well, if you're healthy, you don't need that information. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I agree with that, you know, because what you're seeing with the CGM is when the, when the sugars are spiking, it's an early sign of insulin resistance. And my point is that you can be lean and fit and still have insulin resistance. And I think part of the reason for that is environmental toxins. You know, I think there's things that we're exposed to that we don't know about, like, you know, flame retardants or uh, Teflon derivatives things like that, that are getting, they're becoming ubiquitous in our environment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's the junk food. Sure. Um, You know, that's a big problem for, for a lot of people, but there's also this exposure to toxins in our food and in things that we put on our skin that we don't even know about. I think that's a, a, a great point and a, something that we don't think about, you know, we think a lot about exercise, nutrition, even sleep, even stress management, but I think the environmental toxins is something that it's hard to know. It's hard to, to measure objectively or know how much you're being exposed to. How do you advise your patients on minimizing environmental toxins or how to approach that aspect? But, you know, there's one simple test that a lot of people don't know about, and it's, it used to be part of a standard blood test for a liver panel. It's called a gamma glutamyl transpeptidase. Big word, usually abbreviated as GGT. I'm sure you know it well. Um, when I was coming along in my early days, it was part of a standard chemistry panel that you did for $15. And then for some reason, they, they unbundled it. They took it <laughs> off the panel. Um, and so now it's not a standard test. You have to ask for it, but it's still cheap and any lab will do it. Any lab can run it. The, the trick is that it's been found that people that are in the top 25th percentile of the normal range are at risk for higher mortality from a number of different things, right? And it's thought that the reason for that is this enzyme goes up when it's processing a lot of toxins. So it's this very simple test that you can get that kind of tips you off that things may not be right. I just saw somebody yesterday whose his number was one point above normal. Now, you know, in my training, I would have been taught to say that doesn't mean anything. But in the functional medicine training, if, if you, you know, follow that rabbit hole, if you go down into that research, you get really nervous about it because you start to realize, hey, this is just one of a number of indicators that something might not be right, that that person's liver is processing a lot of toxins. So there's blood tests you can do. That's that's my point. There's blood tests you can do. I'm not typically recommending that your average person go out and get tested for toxins because, as I said, that's a rabbit hole. It can be overwhelming. But it is very useful to do a self-test of what kind of skin product you use. What you wash your hair with, you know? Do you use underarm deodorant with, that's got aluminum in it? I mean, there's, there's some really basic things that you can ask yourself. What about your personal care regimen? 
And it, it makes a difference. I mean, a question I always ask people is, you're going to take this product, um, you're going to put this product on your skin, would you eat it? <laughs> if you're because if you're saying, well, I wouldn't eat it, but I'm just putting it on my skin. Uh, I hate to tell you, but if you're putting it on your skin, you're eating it. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting into your body, into yourself. Going in your body and we can measure it. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed when you have patients who have a high toxic burden um, and they switch over to cleaner products, what, what um, improvements do you notice to their health? Absolutely. People say, I didn't know that I felt as bad as I did. Mm. Right. Or I don't have to push this hard. Some, and something I see in athletes here is they, they go do their workout and then they say, man, I'm just trash afterwards. It's normal to have DOMS, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness, right. I guess, is the, the mm-hmm. last part. You know, it's, it's normal to have a little soreness. But the people that say, you know, I do my workout and for the triathletes, you know, I mean, these are people that are, you know, they go for a run, they go for a swim, they go for a bike. And they may feel okay when they're doing it. And then afterwards they're trashed. Mm-hmm. Well, you shouldn't feel that way, right? You might feel tired. I want you to feel tired. And I, I don't mind if you've got some soreness, we can deal with that. But if, if you feel funky afterwards, you feel toxic. Why do you feel toxic? It's because you're, you're burning fat and fat is where all those toxins are stored. I, I want to continue along this discussion and talk a little bit about inflammation because we've talked about insulin resistance and also how, how toxins can contribute, but inflammation is a big factor here. Um, how, how does inflammation contribute to the aging process? Well, there's actually a term for it. It's called inflammaging. <laughs> inflammaging. Technical term. Yeah. It's a technical term for it. Um, and the interesting thing about it is when you look up the definition of inflammaging, it's quote, sterile inflammation. Well, what does that mean? Okay, so we know about inflammation that you get from a cut or a sprain or something like that. You know, if you cut yourself, then the bacteria on the surface of your skin can get into the area right under the skin or actually into the bloodstream. And that sets off an immune response. Sterile inflammation is something that happens when you have an accumulation of certain proteins inside of your cell. So what, what, what the heck? I mean, we, we tend to think our cells are very efficient factories. So the DNA is transcribed by RNA, then the RNA you know, is made into strings of amino acids and those become proteins. Isn't that nice and neat? It's like a conveyor system. There's a big conveyor belt and you're just cranking in all these proteins. You know what? Most of those proteins are junk. <laughs> we just, we make tons of junk in the course of a day. And we need a process to get rid of that. It's called autophagy. So auto is self and phagy, P-H-A-G-Y. That's eating self. It's basically the garbage disposal crews. Well, how does that work? When you go for certain periods of time without eating, then it initiates this autophagy process and that cleans out the protein. In the brain in particular, that's activated when you sleep. You get this this fluid that 
comes through the brain and washes through the brain. And when people say, well, I, I didn't sleep well and I feel like I've gotten cotton wool in my brain, <laughs> that's because of all these proteins that have built up in the brain causing inflammation. Right? So we, we get older, it gets harder and harder to remove the debris. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings us back to that whole question about calorie restriction and aging. Mm -hmm. Right? That over overeating is something that speeds up that process of protein accumulation. And so what all this really translates into is two basic things is getting really good deep sleep you know, and tracking it, knowing about it. A lot of people don't know. I, I use a sleep tracker myself. There are a lot of them out there, but I was shocked when I started using the sleep tracker because I thought I was sleeping better than I was. I wasn't getting enough deep sleep. So when you don't get enough deep sleep, you have inflammation in your brain, inflammation, right? And then the other thing is eating too frequently. And that brings us to this whole concept of intermittent fasting, which I'm sure you know a lot about and probably talk to your clients about all the time. I think it's the real deal. I, the, the initial studies that were suggesting that, that very strict calorie restriction, you know, 30% of total calories, that that was the way to go. Um, and, you know, that was based on the animal studies, the macaque monkeys. Uh, a lot of people have questioned that. Is that, is that really a smart thing to starve yourself every day? And I tend to be more in that category. I used to think this was a good thing, but, you know, going around being hungry all the time, I don't know, that's such a good thing. <laughs> but going overnight without eating for 14 hours, you know, the, there's a lot of research that's really supporting that. And it is one of the best ways to reduce inflammation in the body. This is sort of a long way of saying, you know, well, inflammation is, is accumulation of debris in the body and it's overreaction to unhealthy foods, to junk food, sugary snacks, and bad bacteria in the gut. Yeah, it's all that. But overeating or eating too frequently seems to be a bigger problem. Love it. I'd be curious to know when you found out that you weren't getting as much deep sleep as you thought what did you do and what allowed you to get more, improve your deep sleep? Well, I'd start going to bed earlier for <laughs> one thing. because I, So I, I used to think, okay, I need eight hours of sleep. So I'll go to bed at 10 and I'll get up at six. You know, well, that was a mistake because I realized that when I, I started looking at my little ring that was telling me what was going on, that I was waking up a lot more than I realized. You know, so I, and that's not that abnormal. I mean, we, we sleep through these 90 minute cycles, right? And it's typical to, to almost get to a wake state. I'm not talking about what happens with sleep apnea, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that a normal sleep cycle is this kind of up and down and up and down. And when you put it all together, it often doesn't add up to eight hours, even if you've been in bed with your eyes closed for eight hours. So I realized that I, I usually need to be in bed for nine hours to get eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. And you'd be amazed how many people come to see me, clients that come to see me that say, you know, 
they're tired all the time, but they just push through it. They, you know, they get a triple espresso in the morning and maybe a, a couple more shots at noon. And, and that helps them get through the day. Well, is that a good thing? Got it. So we're, so, not, we're often not getting as much sleep as we think, right? And sleep apnea is a whole other issue. A lot of people have sleep apnea and that's, you know, not to be discounted at all. But I'm talking about people that say, well, I'm in bed enough. Uh, mm -hmm. It should be enough sleep, but they may not know it unless they get a sleep tracker, mm -hmm. a Fitbit or an aura ring or something like that. Yeah, I think you you bring up a great point. And I think that's, you know, it's something that we as the CrossFit community are very in tune with when it comes to our workouts and our performance. We're always very objective and we like to make sure we're tracking our numbers and bringing that same um, rigor to our other lifestyle factors like sleep can be really helpful and very eye-opening. So um, you talked about inflammation and how especially important and things that are probably underestimated are having time, dedicated time where we're not eating or where we're fasting that allows our body to clean out that debris um, and also getting the deep sleep, especially important for the brain. Um, and relaxation I, time. And relaxation time, absolutely. I just I just caught hell from my acupuncturist the other day who is, you know, I, I get acupuncture on a regular basis and I do it more for tune-ups than for any specific treatment. Mm -hmm. And she was asking me, you know, after doing the usual thing of like checking your pulse and your tongue and all that, she said, do you ever have time when you do nothing? <laughs> and I had to admit that that's not, you know, I don't schedule in nothing time. <laughs> I, you know, if I have a day off, I go hiking up in the mountains or, you know, I, I mean, I want to be physically active, but she was saying it's good sometimes to just basically sit around. <laughs> I thought was a really, I mean, it's, you know, and that's about like chilling, chilling your brain a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, I think probably something, yeah, a little, something a lot of people in this webinar can probably relate to. I think most people who are doing CrossFit are not scheduling in nothing on their calendar. Yeah, just, and it doesn't have to be that much time, just a, like an hour of downtime. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that I look like do for you? I don't schedule it. <laughs> mm -hmm. What does that look like for you if you do nothing um, sitting or I like, you know, reading the news, mm -hmm. um, you know, being outside, walk, taking for taking a walk in nature. That's not, you know, with a pack on my back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about mitochondria um, and just the role that some of these things we've been talking about with, you know, toxins, with um, inflammation, what role those play on our mitochondria and, and why they are so important for the aging process. Okay. So, you know, a talk, a discussion of mitochondria leads into the whole idea of evolution. Right? <laughs> because, you know, mitochondria are, are why multicellular life is possible, right? And the, the whole theory is that at, at one point, we started having more oxygen in our environment. And so bacteria that could use oxygen to make energy had an evolutionary advantage. And then another bacteria came along that didn't have that ability and said, well, what if I just eat this guy? And we know from analyzing the DNA of mitochondria that they come from bacteria. 
which has some relevance when you talk about things like antibiotics. What are anti taking antibiotics? What does that do to our mitochondria? So mitochondria are little sacs inside of our cells that make ATP, which is energy, right? And they use fuel, use glucose and oxygen to do that. And there's some mitochondria that are working all the time, right? I mean, we're, we're basically making our body weight in ATP every day where, you know, we mitochondria are busy. <laughs> it's amazing. They're going at it. It's amazing. It's when you start getting into it, it's amazing. How many mitochondria are in each cell? Well, technically some people say there's one, there's only one mitochondria, but it breaks up into many pieces. So in your heart muscle, you know, the, the cardiac cells, which are basically going all the time, you have thousands. In brain cells, you have thousands of these individual bits. Some people say it's actually just one mitochondria per cell, and it's constantly breaking apart. And why does it do that? It's called quality control, mitochondrial QC. So, the, so those little bitty bits of mitochondria are merging. They, they glom together and then they break apart. And when they glom together, the parts that have gone bad, that have been damaged, basically split off. And so we were talking about that process of autophagy. There's a very specific uh, term used for when that happens with mitochondria. It's called mitophagy. So we're, we're constantly making our mitochondria fuse, glom together, and then little bits pinch off, and then they get eaten up by enzymes inside of the cell. That's healthy. That's good. And what we want is a process called mitochondrial biogenesis. So that technically that means making new mitochondria, but we don't make new mitochondria. We got all of our mitochondria from our mother. Right? The mitochondria are not making, they're, they're making copies of themselves, but they're not really new. So the mitochondrial biogenesis means we're, we're splitting off those mitochondria, making more and more copies of it. The more mitochondria you have, the more energy you can produce. When they do electron microscopy of the muscles of people with type 2 diabetes, the what's called diabesity, right? People are overweight. And the, here's the, the thing about those people is they say, got to eat all the time, but I have no energy. Mm. Right, it's the the fuel paradox in diabetes. I eat all the time, but I have no energy. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It does if you take a biopsy of their muscles and you look at their mitochondria, and what you see is there's nothing inside them. Normally, mitochondria have all these little folds, and the folds are the conveyor belts, you know, where the ATP is being made. But in people that have diabetes the insides of their mitochondria are damaged so that they, they can't really make ATP from the fuel, from the glucose. And so what happens? It gets stored as fat. So they eat all this food. They should have a lot of energy, but instead they're tired all the time. Now, the problem is the same thing can happen in unhealthy people who are not overweight, right? And I, I've seen it in, in athletes who started saying, boy, I'm just not getting there. I, you know, I don't know what's happening. Um, who was the guy that was the, um, he was like the top contender for the marathon in Rio. 
and he had to drop out of running because he developed chronic fatigue. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah. He, well, he, I, he was like one of the most famous athletes in the, in the U S and he had to, he never made it to Rio. He had to stop. Hmm. And he said, he got to the point where he would jog over to the local park and he couldn't make it home. Wow. What's the explanation for that? It, well, there's no other explanation other than his mitochondria were shot. And how do you over, how do you damage your mitochondria like that? Where there's a lot of different ways. I mean, the most obvious things would be things like cigarette smoke and air pollution. We know that those kind of environmental toxins will destroy mitochondria. We also know that too much sugar will destroy mitochondria. We also know that overtraining can destroy mitochondria. And that's a tricky one, but I, I've certainly seen it here in Boulder a lot. I've seen burned out triathletes that, that overdid it and weren't paying attention to the right kind of fuels. They were using the wrong kind of fuels. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I call it the fuel fallacy. The idea that, that people say, well, as long as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting enough sugar to burn, you know, if I'm burning through all my sugar, I can do little shots. I can have these little shot things on my bike and just hit up the sugar. And, and you think that's good for you? Like, well, it's good for you until it isn't. That's the problem. That's the whole problem is that back to our initial discussion is you may not have any outward signs that something is a problem, but if you did a biopsy of, of your muscles, you might find that actually you have fewer and fewer mitochondria or that the contents of the mitochondria are dropping down. So you're not, so your mitochondria may be producing the right amount of ATP, you know, maybe take a little creatine and you get that burst and you feel good, but you're having to stimulate yourself to get to that same level. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's a combination of overtraining and the fuel fallacy. So how can we, let's say someone's listening and they're concerned that maybe this is a factor for them. They haven't been feeling great in training. What can we do to make sure or to ensure that we have healthy, well-functioning mitochondria? Okay. Well, one of the first things is um, to make sure that you're getting plenty of good nutrients that are plant-based, you know, and I know there are people writing books like the carnivore diet. Um, but I'm sorry, that's not a good diet for your mitochondria. People may beg to differ with me, but you need plant-based antioxidants, things like any things that are red, blue, purple, green, all those antioxidants are terrific for your mitochondria. Berries in particular, one of the best things going for your mitochondria, pomegranate. So this is very interesting. A lot of research is being done on a, a substance derived from pomegranate called urolithin A. You might be familiar with that. And it's urolithin A has actually been shown to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, which we were talking about, and also enhance mitophagy. So pomegranate improves mitochondrial quality control or QC. But, you know, the bigger picture is to, to eat all the berries you can get your hands on <laughs> and, you know, try to get organic berries if you can. But I'd rather you got 
berries rather than, you know, just sticking to organic and saying, well, if they're not organic, I'm not going to eat them. Um, but you know, I gotta admit, you can go to Costco and get frozen organic blueberries and they're fine. The other thing that's really good for your mitochondria is broccoli. Um, and the reason that that's so good for your mitochondria is that uh, broccoli contains a couple of different chemicals. One's called DIM and the other one's called sulforaphane. And sulforaphane, which is actually richest in broccoli sprouts. Another thing that I highly recommend that people eat, they want to have their, their mitochondria as healthy as possible, eat a handful of broccoli sprouts every day. They're fun to grow too. <laughs> They're really fun to grow if you can figure it out. I, I have to admit, I tried. Um, it's a lot and, to keep up with. Yeah. You, you, you've got to pay attention to it. You know, it's like your, your office plants, <laughs> you don't water your office plants, they die. And then your patients think, Oh my God, I don't want this person taking care of me. <laughs> yeah. That's but, so yeah, you got to work at it or you can buy broccoli sprouts or you can buy a broccoli seed extract. Um, so forfane glucosinolate, uh, which is sometimes shortened as SGS. Um, that activates a pathway in the body called NRF2. And NRF2 is actually really good for turning on your body's own antioxidant enzymes. So that is very protective against free radicals or oxidative stress, which I know you kind of wanted to touch on a little bit. So I don't, maybe this is the time. I don't know. Yeah, let's go for it. We've got some questions coming in too. So I want to get to Okay. That. So we can, why don't we talk about oxidative stress and then we can, um, then we That's can go to the, our listeners, but so back to this whole evolutionary thing, multicellular life evolved when oxygen came into our environment, but you can't make ATP using oxygen without generating what's called free radicals, which are toxic compounds. So one way to think about free radicals, what they are is it's rust. So that when, when iron rust, it's because of free radicals. When fats go bad, go rancid, it's because of free radicals. So we need a few of these oxygen-free radicals in our body because that actually tells the mitochondria that everything's cool. So you need a little bit of them, but if you overdo it, they're very damaging to tissue. Okay, that's what I think happens with overtraining. When people really, when they don't, listen to their bodies, you know, if their body's saying, Hey, you need to slow down, take a break. You can get back to your training tomorrow, you know, take it easy. Don't overdo it. So it's partly listening to your body. It's getting enough rest. It's having a little bit of downtime. It's not eating junk food and thinking, well, if I get enough sugar uh, to fuel myself, then that's all that matters. The form of the fuel, the form of the sugar is important. It's been shown that when you eat white sugar, you know, if you drink a, a pop, you get 12 teaspoons of sugar from that, right? It increases free radicals in the body and that damages mitochondria. If you do that day in, day out, I don't care if you're lean, you've got damaged mitochondria. So one way around that is to not smoke, obviously, you know, to not jog on the side of a highway which I see people doing because 
They're not, they're thinking somehow they're immune to air pollution to not eat junk food and think you can use any fuel you want, you know, to eat healthy carbohydrates. I'm not anti-carb at all. Um, you know, I don't think ketogenic diets are for everybody. Um, and to get plant-based antioxidants, you know, and the, the sulforaphane that I was talking about is a good one, eating broccoli, curcumin, terrific stuff. Resveratrol, uh, I think is really good. That's it, found in uh, purple grapes, uh, red wine, Merlot. Uh, <laughs> I do think resveratrol is a useful thing. Green tea, I, I highly recommend matcha tea. Recommended to my patients all the time. It's got all those polyphenols in it. So it's a whole program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, I, we are getting some great questions here in the Q and A box. So I want to switch over to some of those. And we did have someone, Katie said, Ryan Hall was maybe that. Ryan. Yeah. Yes. Ryan Hall. So thank you for that. Katie. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> um, so we have a few questions about, um, about sort of labs and assessment. So Emily is asking, do you recommend labs being drawn? If so, how often and what would you consider most important to track for healthy aging? And a similar question from Rodrigo, what do you assess when a healthy and young patient comes to your clinic for a random check? Is there something specific that patients or athletes are seeking for? How do you keep them as patients if they're healthy? Biomarkers, lifestyle behaviors. Yeah, it's not fancy. It, that you know, If it's somebody who's healthy and young, I do a chemistry profile with the GGT that I mentioned, and that's something that people may have to ask their doctor for. And they and don't be surprised if the doc says, well, that's not important. Well, it is important and it is helpful and it does give you some direction. Uh, tracking glucose, I think, is, is really useful. Um, does that mean you should go ahead and buy a CGM, you know, continuous glucose monitor? Uh, probably not unless you're just really curious about biotracking. Um, but you can get a test called a hemoglobin A1C. You know about that, Julie, where, you know, we're all trained in that hemoglobin A1C is a test that's mostly used to monitor how well diabetics are controlling their blood glucose. But it's been pointed out that it also is the best indicator we have about whether sugar is sticking to the proteins in our body, right? So it's not just for diabetics. And the astounding thing to me is how many people I see who are young and healthy whose hemoglobin A1C is going up. So yeah. chem screen with a GGT, hemoglobin A1C, uh, mm -hmm. uh, measuring iron levels, you know, iron is a tricky thing. It's the most common deficiency out there, but too much iron can cause free radical stress. So checking ferritin, I, uh, and I do see a lot of athletes who have iron deficiency anemia. You know, runners uh, lose blood in their feet from pounding their red blood cells. So that's something to track, you know, and you want to have it in the sweet spot. You know, you want the Goldilocks amount of iron just the right amount of iron. And so you can get that from tracking your ferritin. Um, and, you know, that can go either way. It's a little bit unpredictable. Um, so again, you don't want too much iron, but you want to make sure you've got enough iron. Uh, I think measuring lipids is very useful. Um, I, I know there's some debate 
you know, with people that say cholesterol is not that important. I disagree. Uh, I think knowing your LDL particle number is maybe more important than knowing your, just the total weight of your LDL. So that's your low density lipoprotein. I still am in the can that thinks high density lipoprotein is useful. I actually published a paper on HDL in medical school. So, you know, I have a little bit of an investment there, but you know, some of the studies that are saying, oh, I don't, who cares about HDL? I don't agree. You want to know your triglyceride level because that factors into metabolic syndrome. So, you know, that's a basic lipid panel with a particle size added um, and maybe getting the apoproteins, especially the ApoB. There's a lot of research showing that ApoB is a very useful thing. If you're feeling tired, certainly getting a thyroid panel is very worthwhile. I'm surprised at how many people I've talked to that said they went to their doctor and said, I'm tired. Would you check a thyroid panel? And we're told no. <laughs> so, well, you know, thyroiditis, autoimmune thyroiditis is extremely common in this country. So these are things that uh, a family doctor may say, you don't need that. You're fine. I've certainly run into that, but I think it's worth doing. And you can order some of these things yourself. You know, there's uh, organizations like Wellness FX where you can go and order your own panels. So, you know, we're no longer confined to, to I'm sorry to say, going to uninformed members of our profession, you know, that, that say, well, your insurance won't cover it, et cetera. You know, it, that's not a reason to avoid doing something like that. Mm-hmm. What should you be doing? Checking your testosterone and your DHEA. Probably not when you're in your 20s, unless you're Ryan Hall. <laughs> I, I think I think Ryan had a problem with this testosterone. Testosterone just totally tanked. So you know it's certainly something to think about if you feel like you're too tired after your training. Some you know something is wrong. We do have an issue with testosterone deficiency around the country. So it's, it's basic stuff. It's basic medicine, but it may be something you've got to ask for. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a great plug to not be afraid to ask for it. Or if you, you know, the doctor that you're seeing isn't comfortable ordering it, then maybe there are other places you can go to get that information. Yep. Um, just to follow up, which I had, I had a question and Claudia asked a question on the same topic about um, hemoglobin A1C. You talked about noticing it can still be high. We can still see insulin resistance in athletes. And she asks, what do you recommend athletes that are healthy, but have borderline A1Cs do Uh, maybe 5.7 range, maybe pre-diabetes range. Do you recommend they reduce high intensity exercise or increase low intensity exercise? What about cortisol adaptogens? Maybe you could just talk about some of the other things to look at when you see someone with insulin resistance who is exercising regularly. Yeah, I, I think you make a good point about the cortisol, uh, which is that high cortisol, which can be from stress or can be from underheating, right? Uh, you might remember a woman named Diane Schwartzbein. She wrote a book called The Schwartzbein Effect, and it was basically how people would starve themselves to, uh, to try to control their weight but then their cortisol would go up from the stress and their blood sugar would get higher and they would gain weight. Right. So, you know, the, I think the intermittent fasting gets around that. So it's not about saying, well, you should be on 
you know, 1100 calories a day, which doesn't, it's not healthy for you. Um, what else can you do? Well, if you're not eating junk food, you know, let's, let's assume that you're not eating junk food and, you know, you're, you're, you've maybe done some glucose monitoring to see if there's certain foods that are an issue for you. And that, that is something that I've learned from using CGMs with people is they come back and they say, Oh, this is amazing. You know, I've, I find I eat an egg and my blood sugar goes up. I mean, it's sometimes it can be really crazy. It's, so if a person's really, it's like, it, and that was the study, I believe it was done at the Weissman Institute in Israel where they, uh, they took people with, uh, with metabolic syndrome, prediabetes and had them test a huge range of foods. And the responses were all over the map. Mm-hmm. Part of the thought is that it's the gut microbiome. And I bring this up because that is something uh, you can have tested. So there's, there's something, you know, like the, the gut uh, bio test that you can do, you know, that will tell you what the balance is of bacteria. Sometimes just having imbalanced bacteria in your gut can make a huge difference. And there are probiotics that can help bring that back into balance. And then I have to mention one of my favorite supplements, which is berberine. <laughs> now that, so berberine is, a, is an extract from a lot of different plants. The plant that has the most of it in the U.S. is probably golden seal. Um, and then another one called Oregon grapefruit in China, where berberine has been used for a thousand years, Coptis chinensis is the source of it. Now, a lot of people have only thought of berberine as being for gastrointestinal infections, right? Yeast infections, things like that. And it does work well for that. But they discovered in China, I think 15, 20 years ago, that when people were taking berberine for intestinal infections, that their blood sugar was coming down, right? So that was just sort of an aha, a serendipitous finding. But since then, numerous studies have come out showing that berberine not only lowers blood sugar, but it helps fatty liver, it lowers cholesterol, it lowers blood pressure, and it may be, uh, get this, an anti-aging compound. Mm. There's actually papers on it that -hmm. suggest that. Now, that's based on a very familiar drug that I'm sure you prescribe many times called metformin. Metformin was actually based on an herbal medicine, goat's rue, that was traditionally used for people with blood sugar issues. So by studying that, scientists found that uh, there was this compound in it called galagin, and then they, they modified it a little bit to make it a little bit more tolerable and came out with this drug, metformin. Metformin has been given to millions and millions of people for diabetes, okay? But it's now being studied as an anti-aging drug. And it's thought that it works, at least in part, by activating something called AMP kinase, which is really the system you want to get activated inside your cells because that system actually leads to more mitochondria. So they see these things are all kind of, they're woven in together. They seem like they're unrelated, 
but they're all kind of part of this Mobius strip mm-hmm. of being related. So I, I think berberine is an amazing thing for people with that are heading towards prediabetes. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you, how do you approach metformin for aging in patients who are exercising a lot? And do you think that there are similar concerns with berberine? Yeah, I would rather use berberine than metformin than people that want to take it as an anti-aging agent. The reason is there's some research that suggests that metformin may blunt the effects of exercise, which is like, oh no. Backwards, if it's supposed to be so good for so many reasons. It's so good for so many reasons, but you know, it, it may be that they actually have that, that the drug has an inhibitory effects on mitochondria. Hmm. Right. So it's, it's not been resolved yet. Uh, again, Peter Atia has got like a, I think Peter Atia does these podcasts are, you know, three hours long, if you've got the time and, and he's actually talked to the metformin researchers several times. And it's kind of brought this issue up is like, is this a good thing? I think it's unresolved. So I feel much more comfortable telling people to take a gram a day of berberine if their blood sugar is going up. I'm not sure I would give berberine to people who have an A1C of 5.4, right? But if they're up 5.6, 5.7, if it's starting to climb and they're lean and they seem to be doing all the right things, then they may have a genetic form of insulin resistance. And I think berberine is the way to go. It's generally well tolerated by most people. It's, you know, non-toxic. Does it mess up your gut microbiome? Well, I've taken berberine myself for a decade. Um, you know, and I'm still standing, um, <laughs> but I've taken it for a long time and I've checked, I've checked my gut microbiome several times and have not found that it, it caused any kind of problems. That's great. And actually, that was my question, but we did have an audience member who asked that same question. So I'm oh, glad. well, I, I was, I was being psychic. We have a a few questions about intermittent fasting. If you could just provide a few more parameters on how you recommend people go about it. There's obviously a lot of different ways to approach intermittent fasting, but um, do you have sort of a a general recommendation that you give to your patients there? Yeah, so there's overnight, you know, doing it overnight. And then there's the five, two, there's every other day. Um, I try to tailor it to the needs of my client. So if I say, well, you know, can you, could you do every other day? Could you eat a regular diet one day? And then the next day say, it's not really fasting the next day. So it's, it's not really accurate to say, well, just cut back to 900 calories the the second day. I find that most people struggle with that a little bit. And the same thing with a five, two regimen, Um, you know, but I find the easiest thing for people to do is the overnight. And Mm -hmm. When I start saying overnight fasting for people, you know, their eyes get big, their pupils dilate and they, and I go, well, how long do you go between meals? And it turns out most people go 12 hours. So I say, you're already doing it, but I don't want you getting up at three o'clock in the morning, you know, and having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> I, if you're going all night, 12 hours, I want you to really mean that mm-hmm. 12 hours, nothing water. So 12 hours, most people can do, then you kind of gradually crank them up to 14. And for the people that can do that easily, can get away with it, then I try to go to 16. Because I think the best research, you know, for the people who want to get the biggest benefit, if you go 16 hours 
water only and, and restrict, it's really time restricted feeding TRF. You know, you go eight hours with all your meals. If you can, if you can do that at least two nights a week, then good for you. That's what I would say. And, you know, it's not hard and fast. It's different for everybody. I'm surprised at how most people can do 14 and not have a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I that's think 14 at least two nights a week, you know, three, and then build up three, four, five nights a week. For sure. And I think it's a great opportunity too to play with, um, you know, stopping eating earlier before bedtime, because I'm, you know, a lot of patients will notice that has a positive impact on their sleep as well. Yep. And just eliminating maybe a snack before bedtime can give you a few more hours of fasting and help with sleep. Yeah. Now all bets are off obviously for diabetics, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody's on insulin, it's, we're talking about a whole different deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, we're just talking about healthy people. Yes. Well, we've got a few minutes left and there are a couple of questions, which I think are great um, from similar questions from Donna and Ginger about, you know, what if someone is in their fifties or sixties and maybe they made some uh, not so healthy decisions in their younger years, what, (laughs) what can be done to help reverse some of those um, and promote healthy aging at this point? So I always like to talk about Robert Marchand, who is a biker in a, a bike racer in Paris that started racing when he was 101. And I'm, I, I'm not making this up. It was published in a medical journal. He trained for two years and his VO2 max went up. So the, the conventional notion was that after you reach a certain age, that you really can't train enough to make your VO2 max go up significantly. And they disproved that with Robert Marchand. So he raced for several years and he actually won awards. And they said he was fitter at the end of that training time than most 50 year olds. So in other words, it's never too late. And, you know, the hit type training really seems to be a way to go. If somebody has, has really you know, kind of fallen down and, and they want to get their mitochondria back, then if you can work them towards a good hit program, I think that's a way to go. I mean, that probably has as much influence on mitochondria as anything. And now with those people, I'm going to use the plant-based antioxidants, you know, probably uh, put them on resveratrol, nicotinamide, riboside. I think there's Pretty good evidence that nicotinamide riboside for people that age is a very useful thing for the mitochondria. So nicotinamide riboside with resveratrol, uh, green tea, curcumin, things like that. So I'm going to use that whole kind of program in addition Mm -hmm. to their training regimen. Mm -hmm. I love it. That segues into our last question, which I'm going to take which is from Michelle, if you could recommend only five supplements or less in addition to a well-rounded whole food diet, what would they be? (laughs) I mean, it really depends on the person and their age, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, you know, because I tailor everything for every individual, probably, you know, somebody who's younger, I would just recommend a good multivitamin, a fish oil, um, maybe a mineral supplement. Um, I like N-acetylcysteine a lot. Um, for a number of different reasons, because it raises glutathione in particular, and quercetin. There's a lot of evidence on quercetin 
uh, as an anti-inflammatory, as a substance that, uh, that helps clean out what's called senescent cells in the body. Um, so that, that's just off the top of my head. So multivitamin, mineral, fish oil, uh, NAC, quercetin. I left one out. Oh, curcumin. I think curcumin is one that most everybody can benefit from. I, it's kind of a universal supplement, you know, unless you just love to eat curry and eat it every single day, you could do that. Uh, but taking a curcumin extract, I think is a great idea. I love it. I love it. So this has been awesome. I, I think just for myself, pulling out some themes that really stuck out that I think resonate um, with me and hopefully with our community are one, um, decisions that you make for your short-term performance are not always consistent with long-term health and longevity and healthy aging. And yep. one way to know where you stand is to get some blood work. And thank you for sharing um, some of the numbers that you like to look at. I also really like how you brought up the topic of environmental toxins, because I think that's something that is not talked about as much um, when we're talking about lifestyle factors and is something that can play a big role um, aging and inflammation, insulin resistance. And so being more aware of that, maybe checking your GGT, or maybe just taking a look at the labels of some of the self-care products that you're using is a good, um, a good place to start. Um, and then being mindful of things like overtraining, making sure you're getting enough rest, enough sleep, enough deep sleep, um, getting plenty of antioxidants in your diet are all going to be really helpful too. And we had a lot more questions. I'm sorry, we didn't get to all of them. There were a lot of good ones in there, but I really appreciate your time and sharing your expertise. Um, and for everybody who's tuning in, please look out for our webinar next month. So in December, we're going to be joined by Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who's also a family physician. She has some expertise in geriatrics and nutritional science and also works closely with the special operations military. So we're going to be talking about skeletal muscle and health on December 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. So join us for that one. And thank you again so much, Dr. Roundtree. Terrific. My great pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.